Father, truly these truths are our hope that you will sustain us throughout all our days of this journey from now and forevermore. Our hope and our trust is in you uh, through the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for uh, this time of worship and song. Thank you for the truths that we've sung. They're reminders to us of your promises towards us. Thank you for the encouragement that we received. And now, Lord, we, we pray that as we open up your word, may you continue to bring truths to our minds, truths that encourage your people that we, so that we would learn to walk by faith in you and to trust you for all our days of our journey. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Leave your Bibles, brothers and sisters. Please take them and turn with me to the book of Numbers again this morning. Numbers chapter 27. Numbers 27. Uh, oh, man. Is it allergy season or something? One. Oh, hmm. Well, brothers and sisters, uh, let's see. Uh, we are continuing through this book of Numbers. Uh, the Israelites uh, <clears throat> are camped in the plains of Moab across the Jordan River from Jericho. They're in the 40th year of their wandering in the wilderness. There's not much left but to enter the promised land and receive the, the promise of God for them. And so uh, we are looking at this section for the second generation, uh, Numbers 26 uh, to the end uh, is where we're looking at, and God is preparing his people for, the, for entering the promised land. So Numbers 27 is where we're going to be this morning. And uh, we... Today's uh, title is sermon title is looking to God for the future. Looking to God for the future. And so as we talk about the future, and we can, there are many things that we hope to do in the future. Uh, last week uh, in our Sunday school class, we uh, we talked about uh, what are some things on our bucket list, things we hope to do in the future, at least before our days on earth are done. But uh, there are besides uh, bucket list things, which are usually just travel things. Uh, what do you hope for yourself in the future? As you think about your life a, a year from now, maybe five years from now, ten years from now, uh, maybe a little bit closer, even this afternoon, what is it that you're hoping for yourself? What do you hope to, to happen to you, to accomplish? What do you hope to, uh, to experience? Perhaps it's uh, some of the more just aspects of life, such as hoping to graduate from school or hoping to get a job or or perhaps you hope to eventually travel to all those places on your bucket list. Perhaps it's a, of a more material kind of nature, and uh, something that you want to acquire. Uh, for children, I know they're constantly hoping in this toy or that toy. You know, they express to me that all the time. But even as we grow older, there are bigger toys. We, we hope to buy a car. We hope to get a home, perhaps. And then there are accomplishments. There are uh, changes of our in, in our in life stages. Perhaps. We hope to get married, perhaps we hope to have kids. Uh, maybe there's some, some calling of God, some work of God that we wish to do or accomplish. Perhaps you wish to become involved in some of our outreaches in our city uh, in this, uh, this coming year. Perhaps you're sensing that maybe God's calling me to be a missionary and I hope to become a missionary that serves somewhere around the world. But whatever it may be that you hope for yourself in the future, there is one thing that is sure about that feature, 
And that is that nothing is sure about your future except for the things of God. As finite beings, we cannot control tomorrow. We cannot affect today, tomorrow. And so Jesus, even as they are called to worship, encourages his saints to, to not worry about tomorrow. But thankfully, we know who does control tomorrow, right? We know that God controls tomorrow. That God is the God of yesterday, today, and forever, tomorrow. And the Lord our God who controls tomorrow is the one whom we can always put our trust in. James would allude to the fact that God controls tomorrow in his epistle in James 4, 14, 15. Yet he writes, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. We make all sorts of plans for tomorrow, but yet we don't know exactly. We might die today. He continues to write, you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. And also do this or that. Ultimately, our tomorrows are, if the Lord wills. Our plans, our best laid plans, are, are ultimately because is, is if the Lord wills it. If it is in his providence, in his, in his uh, will, that we can do anything that we wish for our fe- in our future. The Lord is in control of our tomorrow and the Lord's in control of our future. And so we should always learn to look to God for our future. The fact that Jesus has to tell his disciples to not worry about tomorrow is an indication about human nature is that we do worry about tomorrow. We do worry about our future. We do worry about all the things that we look to, we hope to do in our future or hope to accomplish. And so when we, as we are tempted to worry, we are to seek him. Seek, as Jesus puts it, seek his kingdom first. We should seek from James, God's will in whatever we do. And we can always trust, learn to trust in whatever lies before us. We can trust God's will for us. That's the lesson we're going to learn today in our passage in Numbers 27. Numbers chapter 27 reminds God's people to look to the Lord for our future. Whatever it is that you are thinking about, you're concerned about for your future, We, as God's people, must learn and must continually look to God for our future. Now, just a bit of review. In the previous chapter, a census had just been taken of all the congregation of the sons of Israel. Every man, 20 years old and up, who was able to go to war has been numbered. Their tribes, their subclans, their tribes and clans and subclans have all been numbered and categorized. But the list list, was not only a list of warriors... But it was also an IOU, a promissory note, if you will, a promise from God that everyone who was numbered on the list would have an inheritance in the promised land. And so in chapters 27 through 30, God continues to prepare his people for entering the promised land. In today's chapter, two particular concerns about the future are addressed or are brought before the Lord and are addressed by God. They are recorded for us as a reminder to God's people that they can look to him for their future. And their encouragement for you and me that we can look to God for our future. So a simple outline, two parts, two events really, two, and so two parts, two concerns that the people of Israel look to God to provide. 
And hopefully their example is an example to us that for what concerns us for the future, we can also look to God to provide. Okay? So that's where we're going to go today. So the first, uh, the first event, uh, the first concern that Israel has that they look to God for is the concern of preserving an inheritance. And we see this in verses 1 to 11. In verses 1 to 5 of, verses of, this, first, of this section, we see the concern is raised by uh, these individuals of Israel. Let's read uh, verse 1 to 5. Then the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Mekir, the son of Manasseh, of the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, came near. And these are the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah, and Hagla, and Milcah, and Terzah. They stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the leaders and all the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness, yet he was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah. But he died in his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be withdrawn from among his family? Because he had no son. Give us a possession among our father's brothers. So Moses brought their case before the Lord. Now, in the previous chapter census, one of the there was many kind of additional remarks that would be interspersed throughout the numberings of the different tribes, the clans, subclans, and one of those remarks had to do with regards to this man named Zelophehad. Uh, we saw it actually back in chapter 26, verse 33. And this Zelophehad was mentioned there as having no sons, but he had only daughters. And it was, it's unusual to see any basically extraordinary uh, uh, comments in a sort of a list of numbers or even genealogies. And so when they're mentioned, they, they sort of stand out. It was unusual. But it's even more unusual not only to see this comment that in this numbering of the warriors of Israel that there was this man who had no sons, but had only daughters. But furthermore, it's unusual in that they start listing uh, all five of the names of these daughters. And that, that stands out. It's unusual and unexpected. And they're mentioned there in 2633 is explained here by this event that's recorded. And the record begins here, if you notice in verse 1, with a recounting of their genealogical lineage. It reminds the reader that these, these daughters as a loaf had are, are significant. They are descendants. They're not just, uh, you know, they're, they're not just, they're nobodies. These are descendants of Joseph. They're of the half-tribe of Manasseh. And Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and they became half-tribes, which each became, uh, an, an inher- received an inheritance of the land. And their specific names are rego- recorded again here in this chapter and because of what takes place here. These daughters, they had, they had a concern, and they brought their concern to Moses and to Eliezer. They didn't just kind of whisper or complain. They had a concern. They had something that bothered them. They didn't just like, you know, talk among themselves or, or, but they, they brought their concern to Moses and to Eliezer. And in fact, before all the leaders of the congregation, this was a, a formal request. It wasn't just say, uh, by the, by the way, kind of thing. It wasn't just to grab Moses in the hallway. It was, uh, we need to have a formal meeting with, uh, to a formal approach of the leaders of Israel. 
they appeared, notice, at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So this wasn't just, just addressed to the leaders of Israel. This was addressed to, to God. They were approaching God's, where God's glory dwelt in the Holy of Holies inside the tabernacle. They were appealing to their leaders as representatives of God. They're bringing their, their concern to God. They're looking to God for their future concern. And their concern is that their, future, their father had died in the wilderness and he had no sons. And that's, uh, to us, maybe that doesn't you know, bring any bells of why that might be significant. But in those days, for a man to die and not have sons was, it was a significant thing. Because in those days, it meant that therefore there was no one to inherit the father, the man's property. Those inheritance were, into those days, were commonly passed down through sons. And particularly, the, the oldest son would receive a, a double portion, would become the default, de facto head of the family once the father passed away. Now, daughters were treated a little differently. Daughters, instead of receiving an inheritance from their father, received a substantial gift from their fathers when they were married. Uh, often we call this a dowry. And once, and they would take that dowry with them, and once married, she would join to her husband's family, and it would be her sons, her children, her sons particularly, who would then inherit her husband's property, not her father's property. So in the case of Zelophehad, his name essentially, because he has no sons, he to inherit his, his property, he would, his name would essentially be forgotten. As according to the Levitical law, in, in, in those cases, it would be his brothers or his uncles who would basically inherit his land or inherit his property. And these daughters of Zelophehad approached Moses, approached the Lord, because they did not not want to see their father's name forgotten. They didn't want to see his inheritance lost. And so they came and they approached and they asked for a portion of their father's inheritance. There are five of them, so they were really asking for five portions, a division of, the, of their father's inheritance to the five of them. Moses, uh, and this is a new, was a new thing, this is not addressed in the law at this, by this point, and so Moses in turn then takes their case before the Lord. As and rightly so, whenever Moses is not sure what to do, he always goes to the Lord. And that's just a great example for all leaders throughout all time. You don't know what to do? Bring it to the Lord. Uh, you think you know what to do. You probably should bring it to the Lord. You, you ought to bring it to the Lord. Uh, and, uh, because God is the one who is our, is our God. and He knows all things. He knows tomorrow. And so Moses brings it to the Lord. So the concern is raised in verse 1 to 5, and the concern is answered in verses 6 through 11. Let's read 6 to 11. How does God answer this concern? Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, The daughters of Zelophehad are right in their statements. You shall surely give them a hereditary possession among their father's brothers. And you shall transfer the inheritance of their father to them. Further, you shall speak to the sons of Israel saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. If his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his nearest relative in his own family. And he shall possess it. 
and it shall be a statutory ordinance to the sons of Israel, just as the Lord commanded Moses. So the Lord answered Moses with a resounding, basically, affirmation of the request. He honors the request. God doesn't just say, oh yes, I approve it, or no, I don't approve it. He, he overwhelmingly affirms the daughters of Lilphahad in their request. He says of them, they are right in their statements. That's a, that's a, they're right in their word. What they've, all that they've said, all that they're, and, and when they brought their case, they, they kind of gave an argument of, of why they were, are asking for a portion of their father's inheritance. They are correct in their logic. Their father shouldn't be forgotten. And more importantly, his inheritance of land shouldn't be lost just because he had no sons. He died in the wilderness. They mentioned that he died in the wilderness for his own sins. He had did not, he was, that is, particularly, he was not numbered among the, the, rebel, the rebels that were led by Korah. He simply died just like the rest of that first generation in their own sins because they had refused to go to war and to take the promised land uh, when they had the opportunity. Whereas those who joined with Korah, that is Dathan and Abiram, they were swallowed up by the earth along with their whole families, including their sons and daughters. Zelophehad was not among them. He simply died like the rest of the Israelites because they had, out of fear, not re- obeyed the Lord and reject and rebelled against the Lord. But if you think about it, the other Israelite men, they're all listed, the, the, the fathers the, of the clans and subclans that are mentioned in the previous census, they all sinned and died just like, uh, like Zelophe had. And they died because of their sin, their own sin. But they didn't lose their inheritance because they had sons. It was passed on to them. And so God saw the, the, the lo- God understood and affirmed the logic of of the daughters and of their reasoning, and he recognized by a statement that it was right that his that Zelophehad's inheritance and name would not should not be for lost and forgotten. And having affirmed their thinking, that God instructs Moses to give them then an inheritance of their father, to give them a portion of the a possession from a, uh, of the inheritance that their father had inherited among along with his brothers. What's more, this isn't just a one-time deal. This isn't just like, oh, this is a, oh, in this case, because they asked, well, let's make an exception. Here's the exception. This doesn't become so. This actually becomes a, 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 a legal precedent for all other future cases that are like this. God further tells Moses that this would become uh, something that he should tell all the other sons of Israel. Verse 11 calls it a, a statutory ordinance to the sons of Israel. That's basically another way of saying legal precedent. This would become law, a part of the Mosaic law. So if a man dies and has no son, then it would, then it would go and be inherited by his daughters. His daughters would be able to t- own that land and, and own it because of his name and remember his name. And they would continue to pass on that, his inheritance, to their children. But if they were, then God 
and he kind of reiterates basically what had already been stated earlier in Leviticus, that if a man dies and he has no sons and he has no daughters, then it would go to his brothers. And if he had no brothers, then to his father's brothers, and then no father's brothers, then eventually to the nearest relative in his family. And in this way, it ensured that the name and inheritance of a man would be passed on from generation to generation and kept within the family, the tribe of that man. So that was the concern of their future, that this inheritance that they were afraid would be lost, this name that would be lost, and they were concerned that, uh, that, it, that he would be lost. So they asked to receive an, a portion of the inheritance so they would continue the name of their father. What does this have to do with us today? Uh, certainly this is not particularly for us to establish for us uh, our, what laws we have for inheritance um, maybe uh, some today might look at this and say, well, this is, this is an argument for why we ought to bring down and destroy the patriarchy that is you know, the source of all racism in our world. Maybe that's that. Maybe it's an argument for on a more, uh, simply an example of more civil rights for women. This is a, a passage for civil rights. And those things may not be necessarily be good or evil or anything particularly, but that's not quite the point of this passage. First of all, it's definitely not, though it does have, uh, have some, uh, some, it does say something towards civil rights. That's really not the point for, of women. We can just go to Jesus, and Jesus will elevate many women in the, in their, in the societal roles and allow them to follow him along the journey. And, uh, but that's not the case here. It's not the point here. It's not about destroying the patriarchy, too, because the reality is that in, in God's in God's uh, nation, Israel, as well as uh, in Christ's church, uh, there is a there is a, some elements of patriarchy, and that the <clears throat> that if you notice in the Old Testament, that it's still the the sons that are first that inherit, and if there are no sons, then the daughters, and then in the New Testament, of course, we know that in the church, the church uh, we call the, or even not even the church, but in Christians among Christians and all. The men of the home, the, the fathers, the, the head, are to be the heads of the household. They're to be the spiritual leaders of their family. And then in the church, the similar thing, of course, with uh, the role of the spiritual leaders, the elders of the church are to be limited to men. So what does this passage say? What does it have to do with us? The issue is as at hand is one regarding the preserving of a man's name and inheritance. You see, the inheritance of the land was a, was a promise that God made to his people. That God made to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. Last week we read out of a, a passage out of Genesis when God promised to Abraham. Let me show you Exodus 32, verse 13. God's anger burned against Israel in this case when they had sinned with regards to the golden calf. And then Moses... He interceded for Israel, and he spoke these words to God. He said to God, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. That's another name for Jacob, right? Your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens, and all this land of which I have spoken I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. See, God had promised. It was a matter of God's promise that he had promised to all the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to Jacob, to his sons, to his, his 12 sons, that he would not only multiply and make them a great nation, but that he would also give them a land. 
And so the daughters of Zelophehad were women of faith, and they believed God. They believed God's promise of a land for their father, who was a descendant of Israel. They, were, they didn't want their father's name or their, his inheritance to be lost because God had promised it. And so in faith, they looked to the Lord, and, and God rewarded their faith. They would, in turn, eventually, we uh, read in, I think it's Joshua 14, 15, around there, that they would actually inherit a, a portion of their father's land. And they would, in turn, pass that land on to future generations. There's a, uh, in fact, it will come be revisited uh, near the end of, at the end of Numbers, Numbers 36 as well, because it's, it's that important, this keeping the, uh, preserving the inheritance of a man, like, and keeping the land within a family. God promised and God intends to preserve the inheritance of his chosen nation, Israel. He's promised it to them. In fact, we see that reiterated throughout some of the prophecies that we find in the Old Testament. We see it, uh, the, probably the biggest one is Ezekiel 40 to 48, if you ever kind of read there. It's uh, this description of the millennial kingdom. And this, all this emphasis on the physical aspects of the, of the land, of the temple, of these places in that millennial kingdom that are, and, and in fact, even talks about the dividing the land once again among the 12 tribes. God is concerned about keeping his promise to give the land to the nation Israel for their inheritance. And God will preserve it because he has promised it to them. And the example the daughters of Zelophehad had showed to God's people that we can look to God for our future. For Israel, it's the inheritance of their land that God had promised. But for the church, we do not receive an inherent promise of inheritance of a land. But, rather we, but yet, nevertheless, we also receive a promise of an inheritance. You read through the, just do a, a word search. If you get a chance later on this week, you, you have time on your hand, do a word search of the word inheritance in, um, in the New Testament. And I think you'll be blessed by the, uh, the, inherit, the inheritance I described that's for you and me. Our inheritance is an inheritance of eternal life. And one of the passages where uh, this is referred to is in 1 Peter 1, 3-4. And this is, the, this is the inheritance that is for ours. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you. Our inheritance as believers in Christ can never be lost, can never fade away. It is reserved for you in heaven. It's reserved for you. And that means because it's reserved for you in heaven, it's the most secure place. It's not a place where, you know, thieves can break in and steal. It's not a place where moth or rust can come in and destroy or decay it. It is guaranteed. It's protected by the power of God. It's guaranteed through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As sure as you understand that the Christ has been risen from the dead, that is as sure as your inheritance is. That's why the resurrection of Christ is such an important doctrine. It is the surety for our inheritance. Even your sin cannot cannot result in you losing your inheritance because Christ died for your sins, for all who have placed their faith in him. And so Israel 
You see, through the daughters of Zelophehad, they had looked to God for their future inheritance. They looked to him for preserving the inheritance of their fathers. And they are an example then to us today to look to God in similar ways for our future, for our inheritance, our hope of eternal life. So that's the first event. Secondly, we see a second event in this chapter where Israel looks to God for their future concerns. And where, in contrast to the first, where they're looking to God for their future inheritance, here in verses 12 through 23, their second concern, they look to God for their future leader. And that they look to God for providing a future leader. The concern is raised in verses 12 to 17 of this passage. This is a, follows, happens someplace after uh, verses 1 to 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go up to this mountain of Abarim and see the land which I have given to the sons of Israel. When you have seen it, you too will be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother was. For in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to treat me as holy before their eyes at the water. These are the waters of Mirabah, of Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them, and who will lead them out and bring them in, so that the congregation of the Lord will not be like sheep which have no shepherd. The Lord here tells Moses to go up to the mountain, to this mountain of Abarim. Abarim is most likely a name of a mountain range in that area nearby. In fact, Deuteronomy 34, verse 1, tells us the specific name of this mountain. This mountain is called Mount Nebo. God is allowing, uh, allowing Moses to go up to Mount Nebo and then to be able to see the promised land, the promised land that, uh, that he had been leading Israel towards all throughout these 40 years. And when he sees the promised land, he will die. And we will actually see that he, only go, he goes to the mountain at the end of Deuteronomy. It takes a couple uh, more, uh, two more, one more book later before he dies. But at, by this point, his sister Miriam has died. His brother Aaron also have died. And now it is through this instruction of the Lord, he's reminding to Moses that it is his turn now to die. You know, brothers and sisters, it's a very healthy thing to just as a, you know, to always remember that uh, though we are alive, we eventually we all will die. We must be prepared for that. Be ready for that. Because it eventually will be our turn. But Moses is reminded by the Lord of, of why he cannot enter the promised land. He's reminded he cannot enter the promised land because of his sin. He had failed to treat the Lord as holy. He who had been, who had the greatest privilege of Outside of Jesus Christ, greatest privilege probably of all the men who have ever walked on earth, he spoke with God face to face. He saw God in a burning bush. He saw the past, the glory of the back of God's glory as he was in the cleft of the rock. He was the one who received, heard God face to face, spoke with him face to face, received God's law from him. He was the one who was given the great privilege to lead his God's people out of their bondage in, in Egypt into the promised land. This was, this was a man who had great privilege, but even with great privilege comes great responsibility. And he had failed to treat God's word as holy. Remember, at, it was at Meribah when the people were complaining again. <laughs> and you would think, 
oh, miraculously, he should be upset. And sometimes as leaders, we get, oh, man, the people are complaining again. And it's easy to, 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 be, to feel some righteous indignation, but really it's probably sin. And he, in his frustration or in his anger, instead of speaking to the rock so that water would come forth for the people, he struck the rock twice, you recall that. That was, uh, by the way, that's uh, Numbers chapter 20, verse 12. And so from that moment, because he did not treat God as holy, he was not allowed to enter the promised land, he nor Aaron. And even having recognized that as the reason, yet we still know that God's word, Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, if you recall, tells us that Moses was a very humble man. <laughs> and that's, uh, you know, that's like John writing, he was the beloved disciple of Jesus. It sounds boastful, but it's scripture, and so he was inspired by God, and God's word does not lie. And so when it says he was a very humble man, we believe that Moses was a very humble man. In fact, we see it evidenced here. Here he is told that you're going to go up to this mountain, you're going to see the promised land, you're going to die now. The thought of death and dying is is something that can really... uh, it really will, it can, it can really grip you and it really challenge your faith as believers. I know it, it does me. Um, but Moses, you, you look at his response, he does not say, woe is me. He does not say, oh Lord, but hey, uh, what if I do this for you? Well, he doesn't bargain. He doesn't, Lord, you're so unfair. He doesn't try to justify. Well, you see, it was like the tenth time in which they were complaining. It was just, I was just doing what you had asked me to do the first time. Strike the rock. Now he doesn't say anything about the un, what he was, as if it was not a fair situation. He knew God was just. He doesn't even talk about himself. He doesn't argue, doesn't complain. In fact, his whole concern is not about himself, but his concern is about others. Here's a man who's come to, to, to be at peace with his death. He's accepted that the Lord, this is the Lord's will for his future, and he is now concerned for those who remain. That's oftentimes what happens. People who are dying, they're thinking about the people that remain. They're thinking about their husbands, their wives, their, their children, their, their friends, their, their neighbors, their cats, their dogs. They're thinking about, what can, how, how will I, who will care for these people? And then you make plans, and, and hopefully you, and that's, there's wisdom in that. He's concerned for the people whom the Lord has trusted him. And he prays to God. He intercedes just as Jesus, as he faced death, interceded for his disciples in that high priestly prayer of John 17. So Moses here intercedes on behalf of the people of Israel. He has been their leader for 40 years and his concern is who will lead them. He looks to the Lord for Israel's future leader. And he prays that may the Lord appoint a man over the congregation to lead them into the promised land. 
Lord, will you provide someone to watch over them, to guide them, to lead them in and out, to go before them and go among them. The terminology is all descriptive of a shepherd, a shepherd who walks among them and leads them and guides them to lead them ultimately into the promised land. Moses prays that God would provide a leader so that Israel would, would, be, would not be like sheep without a shepherd. When we see that terminology, sheep without a shepherd, we, you, that's a shop, that sounds familiar to us because that's, that's Jesus, it's descriptive of Jesus in Matthew 9.36. When Jesus saw the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. The nation of Israel at that time, though they had many religious leaders, their chief priests and scribes and Pharisees, they were, they were led poorly by those leaders. They were sheep without a shepherd, dispirited, distressed. And Jesus responded to that. And how did he respond? Just as Moses responds here, by prayer. And Moses does that here, and Moses asks of God for that faithful leader. And how does God respond when God once again faithfully answers? The concern is answered in uh, uh, answered in throughout Matthew nine thirty six. There for you is answered in verse eighteen to twenty three. How does he concern, How does the Lord answer this concern? Well, let's read. So the Lord said to Moses, "Take Joshua, the son of Nun." a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him and have him stand before Eliezer the priest, before all the congregation, and commission him in their sight. You shall put some of your authority on him in order that all the congregation of the sons of Israel may obey him. Moreover, he shall stand before Eliezer the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his command they shall go out, and at his command they shall come in, both he and the sons of Israel with him, even all the congregation. Moses did just as the Lord commanded him. And he took Joshua and set him before Eliezer the priest, and before all the congregation. Then he laid his hands on him and commissioned him, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. So the Lord instructs Moses to lay his hands upon Joshua. Joshua is God's provided promised leader. And he, asks, he tells Moses to commission him by laying his hands on him. And note, it says that Moses would convey some of his authority, not all, but some of his authority on Joshua. Joshua would serve as the, basically the delegated authority of Moses. And though Joshua would lead Israel, he would not be the same kind of leader as Moses. He would not have the great privileges that Moses had. He would not be receiving direct revelation from God. He would not have uh, face-to-face contact with the Lord, though the Lord does appear to him a couple, uh, a couple times. But generally, as expressed here in this text, Joshua would have to seek God's will through the priest, Eliezer. Eliezer would use the, the law of the Urim. So that refers to the Urim and Thummim. It's described in Exodus 28, verse 30. It's really, the scholars aren't really sure how that works, but it's some way using this Urim and Thummim that they would discern God's will. And though he would not have all the authority of Moses, but would have some, Joshua would still, is still God's provision of the next leader of Israel. He was a man that would be full of the Spirit. Led, who would have the Spirit of God to lead. That's ultimately, that, that theme kind of just goes throughout scriptures when it comes to leaders. The leaders really are simply men, and, and you know, 
finite, imperfect in their ways, sinful. But God always chooses men who are full of the Spirit, whom God leads, who are men who are sensitive to the Lord's leading in their life. And this man, Joshua, is one who was a man who was led and who was full of the Spirit. He was God's provision. And so Moses, in obedience to the Lord, took Joshua, laid hands upon him, and commissioned him. And that's how God provides for Israel's future leader as they look to him. And just like Zelophehad's daughters, Moses was a man of faith that trusted the Lord for their future. In this case, the future leader. And God gave them Joshua. So what does this then have to do with believers today? A little easier to understand. It's, it's kind of some of the practical applications for us today. First of all, we can also look to the Lord for our future leaders. We can trust the Lord for our leaders. The church, God's people never are uh, without a leader. Uh, they have, in the Old Testament, they have their leaders like Moses. Eventually they had priests like Eliezer, Aaron, Eliezer, and so forth. They had priests. They had scribes uh, along the way, uh, Levites. And then in the church, we had, they, God gave us apostles, prophets, then he gave us pastor, teachers, and even evangelists. And so as we look, learn to look to God for our future leaders, then uh, it is something that we as a church should always be mindful of, looking to God for. Yeah, I know I, may, I, know my, I look like a, a 25-year-old man up here, but I won't always be here, right? You know, we all know that. None of us will be. And so we should always be... Uh, we should always be prayerful for the leaders, uh, to, for God to raise up leaders for Christ's church. Some of them may be the, the, the teens that we may be working with in our, in our high school or our junior high fellowship, middle school fellowships. Some of them may be here, some of them may be around the world, but there's going to be, we can trust the Lord for our future leaders. Pray for that and continue. Be, just be men and women in prayer about that. Pray that God will keep on raising future leaders for his church. Not just this church, but Christ Church Universal. Remember the verse up here when Jesus saw, what did he tell them to pray? He said, then he said, disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Pray that God would send out evangelists and pastors and teachers, but also some of you into his harvest. We can trust God for our future leaders. That's very practical. And we can pray for that as Jesus encourages us. On a related note, just over this half next year, this next half year, uh, you can pray for uh, our young pastors, Pastors Roger, Pastor Ray. We'll be, actually, we're seeking to ordain them uh, in this next year. You, uh, I don't know if we announced it yet. We probably did, I don't remember. But Pastors uh, Roger's ordination exam is going to be in November. So uh, you, can, you can help him out by just bringing all your Bible questions to him, okay? Just bring, bring it to him. He needs to get that practice in. Ask him the toughest questions you can think of. Bring it to him. He will appreciate that. <laughs> I hope. And bring it to Pastor Ray, too. Pastor Ray is going to be, he's just had, by the way, I hope you know, he, he, they just had a child. So uh, he's on uh, uh, parental leave, I guess. But his is going to be in February of next year. And so we've, uh, we're in the process. We're actually uh, forming an ordination council for each of them of experienced pastors to come and examine him and then uh, confirm, help us to confirm, basically our desire as elders to, to 
lay hands upon these young men. And when we lay hands upon them, just as Moses laid hands upon uh, Joshua, we are con- confirming that we believe that God has called these men to be leaders of Christ's church. Not just here, but that ordination travels. It goes with them wherever the Lord leads them. That, that whenever they must ask, well, have you been ordained? Have you been recognized as, a, as an authority of Christ and leader, a, a leader of Christ's church? That ordination goes with them, goes before them. But pray for them, pray for God, pray to God to confirm his will regarding their calling as pastors of Christ's church. Lastly, Moses' prayer, uh, as we saw, was answered with Joshua. And in a way, it was that prayer to the, the looking to God for future leaders was his answer to every subsequent leader of Israel, from Joshua eventually to the period of Judges, to Samuel, and then to Judges, and then eventually to the kings. And every leader of Christ's church, in fact, has also been an answer to, uh, to, God, to, uh, to God's provision of a future leader's. And every leader, whether of Israel, whether of church, has served as a shepherd of God's people. But each and every one was imperfect. Each and every one sinned and died in their own sins. But each and every one pointed to a shepherd who would come, who would be the perfect and ultimate shepherd. This one, of course, we know to be Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 5, 4 calls him the chief shepherd. All us elders, uh, lay elders, and staff elders here in the church of Christ's church, are, we are only uh, under shepherds, really, of Christ. He is the chief shepherd. We serve him. Not only that is he the chief shepherd, but he is also the good shepherd. John 10, 11, he's, I am the good shepherd, and he's the good shepherd. He, he seeks that which is good for us. He, he lays down his life. For his sheep, he's willing to sacrifice himself for his people. Now he's a good shepherd, but this one is also the, as First Peter two twenty five tells us, he is the shepherd and guardian of his souls. For for why you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. This shepherd Jesus Christ is our leader. He's our shepherd. We as his sheep never have to fear that we are without a leader. We may have earthly leaders, church, leaders of Christ's church, that maybe some are, some are better than others. Some, are, some may be really good leaders. Some, some may be poor leaders. But we never lack for an, our ultimate shepherd, Jesus Christ. And he is not only our shepherd, but he is our king. He is the king of the Jews that is promised to them. He is the head of the church. And as Revelation calls, tells us, he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And this one is our ultimate leader. And may every, may every leader of Christ's church serve and strive to be like him. Well, we wrap up. Numbers 27 reminds God's people to look to the Lord for our future. And we see these two examples of Israel looking to the Lord for their future, for a future inheritance in the land, of the land, as well as for a future leader of the people. And as the daughters of Zelophehad, had, and as Moses looked, to the Lord for providing their future, the people of God can look to God, to the Lord for our future as well. They set the example for Israel. They set the example for the church to look to the Lord for our future. Because we, we are people who look to the future. 
God has set eternity in our hearts, this sense that there is something beyond us, something future. And so that's why we look to the future. And throughout the things, uh, throughout the, our lives, there are many significant moments when our future is not clear, right? Maybe it's right now your future is not clear. There are times when your hopes of the future go, go awry, when the air is taken out of our sails. We, we wrestle with our future. We worry about our future, as Jesus reminds us not to. When we can't find that job, when we struggle in school, when we have conflicts in relationships, in, in marriage, in our home, when we find ourselves unable to have children, or when we have children, when our children go astray and, and are, are difficult to, 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 to discipline and, and shepherd, when we lose our possessions due to evil deeds or just for unwise actions, and when we face the loss of health. At all these moments and so many more, they, our future becomes all of a sudden unclear. What will happen to me? What will happen to me in the future? And it is those moments that we who walk by faith must learn to look to the Lord for our future. Because in Him our future is secure. Our Lord has made promises to us about our future, about our future inheritance, about our future leader who will come and to take us to be with Him. And so we can trust in Him. Let me just wrap up with a couple questions then. Three questions. for I know for many of you have small group discussions about these things. What matters of the future concern you? What are, what's, what is the burdens that are on your heart? What are the things that you're worried or anxious about? Secondly, what promise of God can you hold on to for your future? It's in those moments of, of worry that we can hold on to the promise of God. As the daughters of Zelophehad did, when they, renew, they remembered God's promise, they held on to God's promise. And so they helped them to trust in Him, look to Him. And then how would looking to the Lord help you in your concern? And just think about, as you learn to look to the Lord in prayer and, and looking to His promises, how will that help you? in your concerns for the future and how can that help you and to think about that and, and share that with others and, and so that you might find that the Lord with the Lord who is our possession will always provide for us richly and abundantly more than we need let's go join to God in prayer Father in heaven thank you for your word and thank you for these truths may, uh, may you guide us and help us continue to trust you look to you for our future we know that it is sometimes hard when trials take place and seems uncertain, matters seem uncertain. But God, we pray that uh, as we remember your promises, as we remember your faithfulness towards us, then Lord, you would cause us to, to not lose hope and to learn to trust you for our future. In Jesus' name we pray.